Talk Podcast. I'm Tom Cox, your host from Grammaticus.co, and today we're going to cover the first truly obscure life of Plutarch's seven to ten obscure lives. Obscure is relative, obviously, but for the most part, most of us feel like we should know who Themistocles is, or what he did, or who Pericles is, or Cicero, or Demosthenes, while no longer being household names, are still names that we know we should know, even when we don't. This guy, Chemon, Chemon with a C, you might be tempted to pronounce it as Simon, but that's wrong, it's spelled with a kappa in the Greek. So I am going to be insistent that it is Chemon for this episode. Anyway, you've probably never heard of him. I had never heard of him before I started reading Plutarch's Lives, and one of the only reasons we know very much about him is because of Plutarch's Lives. He's mentioned in a few episodes by Thucydides, but Thucydides didn't see fit to give us any biographical information about Chemo. We also get a sense of Plutarch's parallel project in that this biography clearly starts with a, an introduction that's meant for both the Roman and the Greek life. We are several seasons away from talking about Lucullus, who is Chemon's parallel, but I would say he's an equally obscure Roman. You probably couldn't even place him relative to some of the other Romans, but he was a contemporary of Cicero and Julius Caesar, Cato, Pompey, all those guys in the first century BC. We also have kind of a hometown flavor to this. Plutarch is from Chironea, which is in Boeotia, the section of Greece just north of Attica and just east of Delphi. There was probably a road coming out of Delphi that ran directly east straight to Chironea because Plutarch was both a citizen of Chironea as well as a priest of Delphi. And so Chemon and Lucullus both have a history with Chironea, Lucullus more so. And so he actually features prominently in the first two sections of the introduction. And you're kind of like, wait, I thought we were reading the life of Chemon. So it's really in section three where we get a why behind the comparison. Plutarch tells us that both were men of war, statesmen who helped their state, and they were able to win these victories without civil war. Furthermore, they went to more remote lands than any Greek or Roman before them. And each man managed to maim his adversary without completely defeating him. So for Chemon, he fights against the Persians as successfully or more successfully than any Greek before him ever had. And Lucullus fights in Asia Minor, really laying the groundwork for Pompey's work a decade later, where Pompey will roll through and often he'll have more experienced troops, he'll have better information, and in some cases he'll even have battles he doesn't have to fight because of the work that Lucullus had done. So these obscure men remind us that great men biographies are as often about selection as they are about a number of other factors. And that Chemon and Lucullus, at least according to Plutarch, from Plutarch's perspective, were great enough men to make it into this biographical cut, but really they just aren't. I mean, if you're teaching an undergrad course on 5th century Athenians, you're almost certainly going to skip Chemon. And I was never taught about Chemon or Lucullus in undergrad as a classics major. So they're obscure often even 
to classicist these guys. But he was, Kimon was the son of an even more famous guy that we've talked about in quite a few lives, but Miltiades, that, or Miltiades, that first Athenian general that put the Athenians on the map by fighting the Battle of Marathon successfully against a larger Persian force and without Spartan help. Yet, as I mentioned in the life of Themistocles, Miltiades doesn't end as he began. His political star rises and then seems to fall precipitously like a meteor back down to earth. And we don't know why. Miltiades dies in prison with a 50-talent fine over his head that is immediately inherited by his son, Chemon, and Chemon's sister. Chemon is orphaned at an early age, and he doesn't seem to receive the same level of education that he would have if his father had stayed alive and stayed wealthy. So it's just he and his sister. It's almost like a Dickens novel. Like they live up in some cold garret, except that Athens isn't really cold, that cold, even in the wintertime, in my opinion. And they need to find a way to provide for themselves. This is where he first develops a reputation of being a little bit Spartan because he seems to be able to live with less even when he does get his wealth back. He and his sister are really close because of what they suffer through. But Kimon has to find a way for his sister to have a marriage that's equal and appropriate to her social class, even if she doesn't have the money. So again, this is sounding like a Jane Austen or Charles Dickens novel, but uh, 2,400 years ago. And yet, since Themistocles, as a man of little means, was able to enter politics, it doesn't seem like not having money was a bar to politics for Kimon either, or even being in debt. Though he does managed to get his sister married off even with the fine still hanging over their heads. And some say that his sister's husband maybe helped pay that fine down. But as he enters public life, Plutarch reminds us that he's actually the equal to Miltiades in daring, and he's equal to Themistocles in cunning, but he has a more acute sense of justice than either Miltiades or Themistocles, and thus is superior as a statesman. And one of the first examples that Plutarch gives us is an example of boldness in leadership. When Themistocles has the idea for them to abandon Athens, Chemon grabs his horse bridle and walks up the Acropolis to dedicate his horse bridle to the goddess Athena, essentially giving it up. And it's almost like with this, he grabs his shield and is the first to walk down to the sea. So he's physically telling the people, look, you may have ridden horses before, but now we're all sailors. And it's here that we get his physical description. He's tall. He looks good. He has abundant curly hair. He fought at Salamis. So this is where he kind of made his name. And his rise in politics is, is often as a counterbalance to Themistocles. So even though, which is going to make him an ally of Aristides. And so he's going to watch, he's really a, a pretty young man and probably hasn't entered politics when Aristides is first ostracized. But by the time Aristides and Themistocles have come back, that is in the Battle of Salamis, right, Chemon is at least active in military duty. And then shortly after seems to be the alternative to Themistocles with Aristides. So he is, he watches this fall of Pausanias, which is detailed much better by Thucydides. Plutarch has told us in at least one other life that he never wants to cover the same ground that Thucydides has covered. He doesn't think that's worth doing. So what he does is he assumes that we know the Pausanias story 
That is, that Pausanias was in touch with the Persian king, and the Persian king convinces Pausanias to switch sides to the Persians. The Spartans find out and want to put Pausanias on trial and force Pausanias to flee. So at this point, the allies don't trust the Spartans, in part because Pausanias was the leader of the Hellenic League against the Spartans. Pausanias is recalled in in shame, and the Greeks look to the Athenians for leadership now. Pausanias dies shortly thereafter. So now, Cimon has these defensive or offensive maneuvers, and Plutarch really leaves it up to us. Maybe this is a distinction I'm finding in the text that Plutarch himself didn't intend, but it, it really seems like with each of these victories, we should be asking ourselves, in what ways are the Athenians leading a defensive league? And in what way is this slowly morphing into an Athenian empire? But first, he defends a Greek polis uh, up north near Thrace on the Strymon River from essentially Persian bullies. He has to lay siege to the polis, and he does so so successfully that the, all the Persians inside the, give up and set fire to their own city, destroying themselves and everything in it. So Kimon doesn't have as much as he would in the normal way of spoils, as in people and things to sell. But he does hand over a lot of the farmland to the Athenians, and the Athenians become colonists. So while that seems to squarely fall in the defensive element of things, he kind of fails to defend the native citizens of Eon and kind of hands it over to the Athenians to take over as a colony. His next victory is as much moral as anything else. But the Athenians do seem to be pleased by the fact that he's going on the offensive. This isn't a, the Persians are coming, the Persians are coming, help, what do we do? That was Themistocles' genius. Cimon's genius seems to flip that and go in the other direction and get the Athenians stuff. And that's one of the problems is that over the next 50 years, the Athenians really start to like their stuff their land, their, their control over other polis and peoples. So at another point, a little island comes, a little island named Skiros comes and asks for help against some pirates. When Kimon goes and drives out the pirates, he discovers or remembers that Skiros was the island that Theseus had been killed on when Theseus had run away frustrated with the Athenian people. and. The Athenians had received an oracle demanding that they bring back Theseus and honor him as a hero, but nobody remembered where he was. So where did you put the Theseus? I don't know. You had it last. No, just kidding. But Cimon does manage to find out about this while he's on the island of Skyros. Maybe somebody mentions it in passing, like, hey, we have a Theseus here. Did you want it back? Uh, and he manages to find the grave. And 400 years after Theseus had been buried, he brings him back in great pomp and circumstance, if you will, to Athens to be buried and worshipped like a hero. People are so excited about this fact, not just because it fulfills a prophecy, but it's sort of like a discovery of a founding father, founding father's tomb or house or something that we thought had been lost, that... <laughs> It has a couple really interesting social ramifications. And the first is that when Kimon and 
his other 10 generals, because remember, Athens will elect 10 generals every year. And so Cimon had been elected general that year. When they come to the Dionysiac festival that year to watch the tragedies be performed, the those in specific political positions have specific seats already reserved for them. And so he and his 10 generals come and usually sit towards the front. As soon as they walk in, the cachet that this has given them, the return of Theseus, makes them get chosen as judges, which are normally selected by lot. But these 10 generals are selected as judges to judge between the plays of, tell me if you've heard of these guys, Sophocles and Aeschylus. So Aeschylus is that tragedian who wrote the Persians, who fought in the Battle of Salamis. But Sophocles is this new up-and-coming tragedian who's one of the three that we have preserved full plays from the ancient world. And and it's actually Sophocles' first debut into the dramatic festival. And Sophocles is judged to have the best tragedy. But the way Plutarch tells the story, it seems that Aeschylus gets so frustrated with losing to Sophocles. I mean, he came in second, but let's be real. If you're not first, you're last. That he leaves and goes to Sicily, where he later dies. So it's interesting that we have the homecoming of one hero from 400 years ago. Homecoming in a casket sort of sense. And then we have the voluntary exile of another cultural hero who who was very important i mean nobody should think that when aeschylus left people were like aeschylus who right he was already very famous in his own lifetime as a matter of fact immediately after he died the athenian people passed a law that said anyone could perform any aeschylus play ever at state expense and that they would write out all of the aeschylus plays and keep a copy of all like 80-some plays that Aeschylus ever wrote in Athens. You might be asking them, why do we only have seven plays of Aeschylus surviving? And the answer, dear listener, is supposedly that the Library of Alexandria, after in one of the Ptolemy I or Ptolemy II, one of the librarians early on in the Library of Alexandria was hungry for books. And essentially, they asked to borrow the complete works of Aeschylus that had been handwritten so that they could handwrite a copy and give Athens back the copy. Well, it seems that Athens either reluctantly or was forced to give up this book and then never got it back. And of course, we don't have almost anything surviving from the Library of Alexandria, which famously burnt down at least once in the ancient world, and maybe more than once because there's so many stories about it burning down. But anyway, back to the program. I just think it's cool that Sophocles and Aeschylus make a cameo appearance in Cimon's life. So let me get another of Kimon's victories that's, uh, you know, a little less pirates, a little less defensive. And he is strategically taking the city of Byzantium and Sestos, which are in the little narrow strait that connects the Aegean Sea to the Black Sea. And so almost all the trade that's going to come through the Hellespont is going to be visible and can maybe even be stopped by anybody who owns Byzantium or Sestos or any of those polis right there along the lines. So when he's having drinks with his friends, which include the poet Ion, his friends kind of ask him, like, what's what's the best story? What story are you most proud of? And he says that he brings this story up and he says, I was most proud of when we took the prisoners at Sestos and Byzantium and we really separated them out into the people and the stuff. And because we were still fighting with the allies at that time, 
instead of totally solo, we allowed the allies to choose. Do you want the people or do you want the stuff? And the allies thought, well, who wants people? I mean, sure, you can sell them as slaves or ransom them back to their people, but they're really fellow Greeks, so it's highly unlikely, I guess, that they'd sell them into slavery. Though not impossible, it definitely did happen, and we'll talk about it in some of the later Plutarch lives. And the stuff is just so obviously immediately useful that they accept the stuff, at which point the Athenians are annoyed with Cimon. They're like, why'd you just let him walk away with all the stuff? Like, didn't you want the cool stuff? Some of that stuff was shiny. But then it turns out that as the Athenians are annoyed, the friends and family of almost all the captives come to ransom them, and Cimon and the Athenians end up with more money than the allies had received from their shiny pile of stuff. So he felt like he had won both the victory of allowing the allies to choose and then had the shrewdness to see that they would make the inferior choice. So Kimon now at this point has recovered all of his wealth and has gone from being 50 talents in debt to now being one of the wealthiest Athenians. I mean, it helps that probably his family didn't lose their land, it seems, and Miltiades was from an old Athenian family. And so their land was productive this whole time. That might be one way that he earns his wealth back. But he actually is famous not just for his wealth, though, but also for his generosity. So he allows anyone to gather fruit from his fields and orchards. And then he provides dinner daily for the poor in Athens. Although Plutarch reminds us that Aristotle says it was only for the poor in his deme, which would have been about one-tenth of the poor, 10% of the poor. But either way, it is an impressive act of generosity to feed those in need and not expect anything in return. It doesn't seem to have been a common way in the ancient world. And he was generous with more than just food. Sometimes he would walk with a large body of people because that's what you do when you're important. You have a lot of people following you around. And he would have some of the young men who followed him wear two cloaks so they could give one of the cloaks away to somebody who needed it. And he would just fill their hands or pockets with money so that they could decide who to give it to. So it was like Kimon was giving it, but not, not, so as, not so directly as to be, you know, looking you in the eye and handing you the $5 bill and closing it in your hand. So most... Most of the Athenians have a great deal of respect for Cimon. And the sophist and famous rhetorician Gorgias says that Cimon makes his money to spend it and spends it to gain honor. So this is a generosity, the level of which the Athenians don't seem to have seen before. Though it's also a level of generosity that starts to rouse suspicions in his political rivals. Is he a demagogue? Is he trying to appease the people to control them and get his political will passed? He, along with Aristides and one other politician, seem to be the only three politicians of their time exempt from bribes all the way through to the end. So as the Hellenic League continues to fight against the Persian threat, the allies start to realize that this is no longer a defensive war as much. The Persians have pulled back even out of the Aegean Sea now. And many of the allies would rather live at peace. And the Athenians kind of give them that option. And they say, great, you want to live at peace. You don't have to always give ships. You can just give us money. But you do have to pay taxes. And Kimon thought this was fine because he thought if you give us enough gold, we can hire as many Athenian citizens as we need to replace 
however many, and obviously we can always build ships, we have a nice naval base to work from. And so the distinction between those who served and those who pay kind of naturally created this distinction where there were those who were doing the fighting and those who were paying for the fighting. And there was an imbalance there where the Athenians' best interest was to keep fighting because that was essentially their livelihood now, whereas the Allies' best interest might be wanting to pay fewer taxes or knowing that since they'd been left alone for 5 or 10 or 15 years, wanting to spend their tax revenue on something else. But once they paid it to Athens, they really had no control over what happened to it. So that's not so much like taxes as tribute. Although speaking in the modern era, I will say I have pretty much no control over where my own taxes are spent. So so maybe I pay tribute too. So the allies are tired of the war and they're sometimes even tired of the taxes. But Kimon isn't really done with his defensive battles yet because he's He doesn't just want to drive the Persians out of the Aegean Sea. He wants to drive them out of the west coast of Anatolia. He wants to drive them away from the western border of Asia Minor. And so he approaches Pamphylia in the northwestern corner of Asia Minor. And he's working with the Chians, those from the island of Chios, an island right off the coast of Asia Minor, to to try to take this section of coastline and keep it safe from Persian influence. And Kimon both fights a sea battle that he wins, preventing the Persians from fleeing upriver and going to safety, captures 200 ships in this sea battle. And then the same day, he decides, he sort of gauges his men thinking, can they handle it? decides that they can, and then lands his troops and fights a land battle that he's also successful for. Um, and, And then the next day, this is crazy, right? After basically fighting two victories that, as Plutarch points out, surpassed Salamis and Plataea by combining both into one single day, He hears the next day that there are 80 Phoenician ally ships nearby, sails towards them, catches them by surprise, and captures all 80 ships. That's an entire navy. So it's the course of two days, according to Plutarch's numbers. He's captured 280 ships. He's probably more than doubled the size of the Athenian navy. So the king of Persia sues for peace and promises to stay at least one horse's journey away from the Greek coastal cities and to go no further west than the Caledonian Islands, which gives the Greeks supposedly something like uh, 10 to 20% of Anatolia to themselves to claim. So this is a big, this is offensive maneuver, right? This is not something, yes, technically in the treaty, if it existed, they are specifically staying away from Greek cities, but there's also nothing about the Greeks maybe founding more cities or taking over other areas, right? This seems like a very offensive move and tons of money and wealth pours in from this victory. So the... The completion of the walls on the Acropolis after the rebuilding of Athens, which remember Themistocles had started, some of the 
uh, foundations for those long walls connecting Athens to her port are entirely funded by just this expedition against Persia. He takes a region of the city right outside the walls called the Academy and converts it into basically a pleasure park, makes sure that it's well watered, irrigated, planted with nice plants. And that's going to be a place in about a hundred years later where Plato is going to come back and found his school. And that is why the word academy is something you associate with schools and not with Athenian parks. But Cimon doesn't just win big battles. He can also, he also manages to win against strange odds. There's a point where he fights in the Chersonese against the Persians, and he has four ships and they have 13. And he wins. Now, when he wins and gets the Persians out of there, he opens that area, which again is near the straits that lead from the Aegean into the Black Sea. He opens that area for Athenian settlement. So again, is this defensive? Is this offensive? He's defending against Persia and then making space for Athens to send more and more and more places. And now we get, here's the kicker. The island of Thassos, not too far west, is really at the top of the Aegean. Thassos is so is an island so close to the Thracian mainland that uh, they own large tracts of land opposite the island, including some gold mines on the mainland. But they revolt. They're tired of paying taxes. They don't want to give men or ships or money anymore to this. And Cimon surrounds them, besieges them, captures 33 of their ships, takes all of their gold mines and says, yeah, these, these belong to Athens now, and forces them to stay in the Hellenic League. Plutarch explains that this is good strategy, not just for fighting Persia, but for having a balance against Macedon, because Thassos has some, basically, to their west is Macedon, and to their east is Persia. So they're a nice strategic base to have. This island is actually going to show up later in uh, the life of Brutus, I believe, because it's where Brutus is brought to. But that's neither here nor there. Stop getting distracted, Tom. Focus on this Plutarch life. Come on. <laughs> Come on, Cimon. Come on. Sorry, bad pun. Some people blame Cimon for greed in taking these gold mines, but he's really giving them to Athens. His response, though, anyway, is I'm more Spartan than Ionian anyway. And we want to unpack the distinction that the stereotype was that the Spartans were thrifty and could have less, right, and could live like Lycurgus, their ideal model. And the Ionians were luxurious. They were into the purple cloth and the fine goods that came from the large Persian Empire to their east, which allowed for all kinds of trade and abundant selection of goods. So he calls himself more Spartan than Ionian, and then ironically, he's put on charge for being not a Medizer, as we talked about in the last life, like Themistocles was blamed for, but for being a Laconizer, right? a Spartanizer. Somebody who is giving way to the enemy, Sparta, right? We might all be in this together, sort of, in this Hellenic League against the Persians. But remember, there are Greeks that we trust less than others. And the Spartans are definitely it. He's put on trial. And this is the first time we see Pericles is starting to rise in the political situation. We're probably around the 450s BC. And Cimon's sister has to go and ask Pericles not to be too harsh on Cimon. I mean, Pericles is one of like 10 or so prosecutors. 
And Pericles speaks only once and doesn't seem to be very interested in the downfall of Kimon. But Kimon does go away for a while to let things settle down, even though he is acquitted. But in the time that he leaves, it seems like Pericles and Ephialtes take a number of political steps to make the demos, to make the citizen body, decide even more things than they did under the original reforms of Cleisthenes. So the Council of the Areopagus was this permanent sitting council of people who had served as archon. So it's basically going to be the wealthy and most powerful in Athens. And they make a lot of the important decisions. Often they will even set the agendas for what the demos does because you you might have literally all day when you're serving your political duty, but it does help to have an agenda set beforehand for things to be efficient. So some of those old powers of the Council of the Areopagus, murder trials, setting the agenda, as I brought up before, are switched over to just the regular citizen body. The boule or some of the smaller groups are able to, or the groups comprised of regular citizens, regardless of wealth or rank or political distinction. And some of his early, some of the early things they blamed Kimon for when he was an orphan come up and are used against him again. He's called a drunkard and a uh, Spartan sympathizer and um, and yet Plutarch takes this moment to remind us that he still took more cities and won more victories than any other Athenian. Now that might change. I believe he is either matched or eclipsed by Pericles, although Plutarch isn't the one that tells us that. So and then Plutarch kind of has to turn and and admit that some of the people that call him a Spartan sympathizer are absolutely right. And he did love Sparta and the Spartans liked him too. He gave two of his sons Spartan names, but the Athenians are just worried about him preferring Sparta to Athens. So you have a couple weird things happen. In the 460s, an earthquake hit Sparta, devastated it, pretty much leveled it to the ground. And Cimon sends, convinces the Athenians to send aid. As Cimon returns from giving that aid, he passes through the Corinthian lands without asking permission. He angers the Corinthians. And then Sparta asks for aid again later. And when the Athenians arrive promptly, the, the Spartans are kind of so scared that they arrive armed and quickly that they just send them away. They're like, never mind, never mind. We don't we don't need any, any help. Meanwhile, in the background of this, although Plutarch doesn't mention it, the Spartans and the Athenians are fighting what's called the Sacred War or one of many Sacred Wars, which is control over Delphi is disputed between a number of different peoples, but the Delphians themselves want to have control over the oracle and the temples and the games that are held there every four years. And a nearby area of about 10 other polis in focus, they claim that they control Delphi and ought to. And so the Spartans back the Delphians and the Athenians back the Phocians. And you have this sacred war that kind of goes back and forth. So at one point, the Spartans are walking back from Delphi and they have to walk through Attica to get home unless they're going to sail, which, as we know, the Spartans don't do much of that. So they're camping inside of Athenian land at Tanagra and the Athenians roll out in the phalanx ready to fight them. Cimon at this point has you know, been ostracized or is out of the city. And and he comes back hearing that the Athenians are in need and he wants to fight on the Athenian side. The boule, remember that smaller democratic body, hastily like meets together and they're like, no, 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 we have to forbid Cimon from helping the Athenians. And they tell the generals, reject Cimon if he comes and offers his services. 
And the generals do. And Kimon accepts their decision. And the Athenians, although they fight boldly, lose. So at that point, one of the, as they, the armchair quarterbacks the next day sort of try and figure out why they lost, why a hundred Athenians had to die for them to figure this out. They, one of the X factors is they realize, well, we did reject Kimon and we lost. So therefore, twisted logic, we must have lost because we didn't have Kimon with us. Pericles proposes that they bring Kimon back and he is invited back. He manages to reconcile Sparta and Athens on his return. So this is the end of one of those sacred war things. But he he can still see that what he has what they've turned the Athenians into. I mean, we're in 450 BC now. We're 40 years after the first Persian invasion and 30 years after the second one. The Athenians have been professional soldiers since at least the second invasion when they when they realized like we had to abandon our city and become permanent soldiers, like permanently on the march. So Kimon has plans to go to Cyprus and even sends ships to Egypt to help in a revolt for these people against the Persian Empire. But while he is in Cyprus besieging the city of Kittium, uh, he dies. And so he had actually even sent men to the Oracle of Amon in Egypt, which will be important for other conquerors like Alexander the Great. And by the time the men arrive at the Oracle, they're told to go back because Kimon is already with the gods. And when they return, they find out that Kimon had died on the day that they reached the Oracle. So Kimon kind of dies at his height. We're pretty sure that he died of sickness while besieging the city. Does not That seems to agree with Thucydides. Uh, but others say he died. Maybe he was wounded fighting the Persians. Um, they hide his death even from his own men so that it doesn't lower morale. And he's really the last leader to take the Persian War that far, to take it against the Persians and to help the Cypriots and the Egyptians and other people sort of break the Persian Empire back into smaller pieces. And what Plutarch says is now the Greeks turn on each other and destroy each other. We've already seen the seeds for that sown, right, in the Spartan and Athenian resentment over certain issues where some small polis thinks that something is unfair and they have two choices, two big kids on the block to appeal to for aid. They can ask Athens or they can ask Sparta, but they know that in picking one as a friend, they're automatically getting the other as an enemy. And so his, uh, his remains are brought back to Athens, and he's buried, but he is still worshipped as a hero in the Cypriot city of Kittium that he had besieged. So that's the life of Kimon, somebody you didn't know anything about 40 minutes ago. And now you see that he is not just the link between Themistocles and Pericles, two Athenians that you know well, but actually a nice... Um, continuation of the history of the time leading up to the Peloponnesian War. I mean, even when we get to the life of Pericles, Pericles is going to continue the theme of Athenian military involvement on an annual basis. But that military involvement won't, 
won't always be focused on this anti-Persian sentiment. It's going to be focused on whatever is going to help make Athens better. And I think that broader term is going to make Pericles and the Athenians make some decisions that are going to lead them straight into war with Sparta. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, feel free to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find me at plutarch.life or grammaticus.co slash contact. Thanks for listening, and I hope I've inspired you to open Plutarch and let his lies influence yours.